this, uh, in the last couple of weeks, I guess, in uh, American popular culture, we saw someone that everyone loves become unpopular. You know who I'm talking about because he's kind of a world famous person. And he's sort of famous for being a nice guy. And very popular. And in fact, he was attending a ceremony in which literally everyone expected him to have a moment of extreme triumph. And then he did something really horrible, really horrible, right in front of the television cameras. So this horrible thing he did was broadcast literally around the world to millions and millions of people, maybe billions. And he went from Absolutely one of the most popular people in the world to one of the most despised people in a matter of minutes. Well, you know, something like that happened to Jesus. though not because of anything he did. Well, sort of because of how things he did, but not because he did anything wrong. Because, of course, Jesus never did anything wrong. That's an amazing statement. It's really a spectacular thing to say about anyone that they actually never did anything wrong, but that is the case with Jesus. And what we celebrate on Palm Sunday becomes Good Friday. Blessed is he who comes into the name of the Lord, comes in the name of the Lord, turns into the shout, crucify him in a period of five days. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And we read the scripture from uh, the book of Mark of, the, of this event we call the triumphal entry. In recorded in all four gospels, various versions of the events of that day. But they all include uh, acclamation, uh, nearly unanimous praise of Jesus, a very high expectation of Jesus. We could read about this in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, 
when they drew near to Jerusalem. This is Matthew's version of the same story we just heard from the book of Mark. Uh, Jesus said to the disciples, go into the village and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything, you say the Lord needs them. He'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey, colt, put put on them their cloaks. He sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Behold, your king is coming to you. There's a very high expectation. Israel, in this period of history, was full of messianic expectations. Everyone was looking, who is it going to be? Who is it? Is this him? Is this him? And Jesus, of course, had done many things that declare his claim to be the very son of David, the king of Israel, Messiah. But in this prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9, by the way, In this prophecy, there's something very interesting. Your king is coming to you humble. Well, that's unexpected. He's mounted on a donkey, not a carriage or a chariot. Now, if you were to look this passage up in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, you'd find another little phrase in between, your king is coming to you, well, after the word humble. It says, righteous and possessing salvation. Victorious is a way you could read that. Just as we sang, our God reigns. God reigns. And that word righteous means qualified, like he is the genuine article, the son of David, the one who has the actual claim on the throne of Israel, legitimate. But he comes humble, mounted on a donkey, not a carriage or a chariot. Well, we like humble, don't we? This actually is successful in worldly terms. The people of Israel line up and they throw their cloaks on the ground to pad the feet of the donkey on which Jesus rides. And they wave palm branches. That's a, that's a well, I wave a palm branch because it's a lot bigger than my hands. It's a greeting. It's a welcome It's a, we're so glad you're here. So Jesus arriving on a donkey, 
I don't know how much people knew this kind of obscure verse in Zechariah. Maybe they knew it. But his, he's putting himself right down with them, humble. And it works. They like it. He is real, it's not for show. He's not just relating to the common people to become popular. In fact, we'll find out by the end of the week, he's not really that interested in becoming popular. Behold, your king is coming to you humble. And of course, the people shout, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as we read in Mark 11:10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Now, David is the, the prototype king of Israel. David is the king that everyone recognizes as the model of the person who is the king of Israel. David is the prototypical Messiah, the anointed one of God, the man after God's own heart. And that is our expectation. He's also the man under whom Israel reached success in the world. Blessed is the coming kingdom. And of course, Israel is anticipating uh, a return to the glory days of Israel. That's their messianic expectation. The king who will bring them back like they were with David. And the word Hosanna, well, it's like we stood along the sidewalk and said, Savior, Savior, Savior. It literally means, come and save us. They anticipated a king, a saving king, just like we read in Zechariah, righteous and saving. This is a royal welcome. It is difficult to conceive of a greater welcome than this. So there's an anticipated greatness in Jesus. And of course, Jesus has demonstrated greatness. Jesus has preached in a way that nobody's heard in a long time. Jesus has performed miracles that no one's seen in a long time, healed people at will, forgiven sins, and this caused conflict as well in, in the public discussion. But it's clear in the text of these scriptures where this triumphal entry is described that people loved Jesus because the people who didn't love Jesus got really worried. 
Well, and Jesus helped with the worry. You know, the next event that's recorded in the book of Matthew is the second cleansing of the temple. So Jesus came in, he comes into the temple, and for the second time, he chases out the merchants who are there selling the various things people need for their temple service, their sacrifices or whatnot. And also there's a big money exchange there because people come here from all over the place and there's apparently a good deal of gouging happening. In other words, people are charging a lot for this stuff because you need it and you need it now. It's sort of like they do when you go to the football game or the movie theater and they charge you a lot for that hot dog. I mean, you could make that same hot dog for 50 cents and they're charging you five bucks. Well, that sort of thing was happening in the temple and Jesus chases these people out. And he says, my house, well, he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You're making it a den of thieves. By the way, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 56 when he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Prophecy of Messiah. And it says in, in Mark 11, it says he was teaching them when he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You know, I looked this up. In the whole Old Testament, the temple is referred to as a house of prayer once. Now, it's referred, prayer is happening in the temple more than once, but it's called a house of prayer only in this text, Isaiah 56, 7, where the, I, the prophet says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. What is it a house of? It certainly is a house of meeting with God. But in order to be a house of meeting with God, it must be a house of sacrifice. It's a house of sacrifice. And these guys are selling sacrifices and, well, Jesus doesn't tolerate, tolerate it. By the way, in Isaiah 56, 7 also, that prophecy is about the opening of the temple of God to the nations. Gentiles will be welcomed in this day when the temple will be called a house of prayer. Well, we talked about this last Sunday when we talked about the old temple sacrificial system and how it was designed to be a meeting place with God and also at the same time, a separation from God. Well, what does Jesus do? He turns into a house of prayer. His sacrifice makes it a real meeting place once and for all.
and for all. Now, the text goes on to mention various healings that Jesus does during this week. He cleanses the temple and he does healings. Well, this teaching of my house shall be called a house of prayer, that's popular too. People like that. People think, yeah, somebody should have chased these robbers out of here a long time ago. Who should have? Well, anyone calling himself a priest of God probably should have. And of course, the people could have because they like the convenience, even if they don't like the price. Well, but they like it. They appreciate it. And all this whole time, the scripture is describing the children. Apparently, like wherever Jesus goes, the children, children are following him around going, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. The son of David. Well, this created a reaction. This created a reaction. The leaders of Israel are not pleased. And so in uh, the book of Matthew, When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, they saw the wonderful things that he did. He's healing people, the miracles he was doing. They saw. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. What was the reaction of the chief priests and the scribes? They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, didn't you ever read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. Then in their own discussions with each other, they say the whole world is going after him. And that's not a good thing as far as they're concerned. We're threatened because everyone's going after him. So up until now, Jesus' popularity is just growing, just growing. Now the cleansing of the temple, the miracles he does, this widespread acclaim that he's receiving, these things are not making the people in charge happy. Here's something people in charge never like. Someone else coming along who looks like he might take charge. People in charge never go for that. And they don't go for it in this case. And I'm pretty sure they're really convinced in their own hearts and minds that Jesus is a false messiah. So it has that uh, religious condemnation added on top of that political problem. Well, Jesus doesn't help himself. In the book of John, chapter 12, we read in the middle of this week, 
Jesus says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is John chapter 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, what does that mean? Up until, I mean, just saying that by itself would probably be, yeah, okay. The time, the time of Messiah has arrived. Hosanna. But Jesus goes on. This is verse 23 of Matthew chapter 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, we might wonder, does, what does he mean lifted up from the earth? They did not wonder. They apparently knew what he was talking about because they say this, well, John says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. The Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Crucified. Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus, Jesus has been preaching this pretty consistently for some time at this point, that he's going to die and be raised, and in so doing, provide eternal life for those who believe in him. But when he says this, things begin to shift. He says, the, the crowd says, you know, so what do you mean? The Messiah has to live forever. And he says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And when he said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. 
Now, in the book of John, the story shifts, and it's all exclusively with the disciples in the upper room from that point forward. Jesus announces that he did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save. He says at the end of chapter 12 that the Father's mandate is eternal life. And we know, of course, that the, that, that eternal life is provided by his death, his sacrifice for sin that turns the temple of God from house of sacrifice to house of prayer. This is his mandate, he says, from the Father, eternal life. He says in verse 40, he, he quotes from Isaiah, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Of course, it is necessary for Jesus to be rejected. And so he goes from glorious welcome to total rejection in the space of a few days. Now, Jesus says repeatedly, nobody's taking my life from me. I'm laying it down, and I will take it up again. And those who believe in me, I will give them eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. He's going to be raised, and so are those who believe in him. So we see Jesus going from proclaimed king, son of David, to crucified criminal. See, Israel wasn't looking for the Messiah God was providing. They, they didn't sense the need for salvation in the sense of dead sinners who need to be brought back to life. They were looking for vindication more than salvation. They were looking for the God who appreciates righteousness among men. That's the, that's the key thing that they missed. They were looking for the God that would the righteous nation and thereby and therefore return to them the because they deserved it. They didn't realize that what they needed was a savior from sin. They needed a savior from Rome. They thought Messiah was vindication of Israel. So I want to ask you, what kind of savior are you looking for? You know, there's a popular question, at least among Christians who are trying to share their faith with others, and that is this. If you died and you were standing before God today, and God said, why should I accept you into heaven? 
what would you say? What would you say? What sort of savior are you looking for? It's very common to hear the answer to that question. Well, I'm pretty sure God would be okay with me. I'm, I'm not a bad person. And that uh, mentality is the mentality of God will vindicate my righteousness. Whatever level of righteousness I possess, he'll be good with. Because he's a nice God. And we have this idea of God as some heavenly grandfather type of person who always gives you candy, whether it's good for you or not who always does the nicest things for you, who is always there looking out for you. When we have this vindication, you don't really need a savior if that's how you think of God. And if that's there was no need for the Son of God to show at all. It's exactly what Paul writes in the book of Galatians, where he says, if by doing the good justify ourselves before God, then Jesus died for nothing. There's reason for Jesus to die made flesh, there's no reason for him to die if you can do it yourself. If you can make yourself acceptable before God. So the people of Israel believed they were themselves acceptable before God and all that was necessary was for that one last great Israelite king to come along and cast off the nations cast off Rome and establish Israel, the great, righteous, chosen people of God. What kind of Savior are you looking for? The Savior, the God who vindicates your own righteousness, or the Savior who gave his life a sacrifice to actually satisfy the wrath of God that should fall on you? God is not good if he fails to judge unrighteousness. And for those who put their faith in Christ, he judges our unrighteousness on the cross of Christ. So that the book of Colossians says he took the list of offenses, yours, your list of offenses, and nailed it to the cross of Christ so that your list of offenses to the holy, righteous God is satisfied by his sacrifice. And so you can be clothed in his very righteousness. 
in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. Verse 23. These numbers get harder to read every year. All right, I gotta back up a little. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. The folly of what we preach. He's saying what we preach is foolish. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we Preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We preach Christ crucified the humble righteous Savior. Martin Luther called this the theology of the cross as opposed to the theology of glory. And the theology of glory was the religious systems of the world that climb up to God. And if you can climb hard enough and long enough, you will reach him one day. The theology of the cross is you don't find God by looking up. Where do you find God? On the cross. The last place anyone would look for God. And Martin Luther made the point of saying that this God has arranged it this way so that it would be evident, 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 obvious, must be the case that our salvation is all from God. Because you can't get a Savior on a cross. except by the work of God for you to see the reality of the cross. So you are saved by grace through faith. You have seen the living God when you see Christ crucified. And this was what was missing. This is why people shout, crucify him. And so Jesus, by design, by design, fails the popularity test. And because he fails the property te- the popularity test, 
His death satisfies God for me. And of course, he didn't stay dead. But that's what next Sunday is about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Savior that you provided. That we didn't recognize our need of, except that you provided him. Lord, we cast ourselves onto your care. We trust in Christ crucified. And we celebrate that our God reigns. Our God reigns in our hearts in the Lord Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who humbled himself. Lord, we pray that we might exhibit the same sort of love that he exhibited because we have been so well loved. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.